0: It's a privilege to be able to uh, open God's Word for you this morning. We are continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount and our study of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, yeah, um, and we are coming to the end of this now. We're in chapter seven, and it's been such a joy to to study the you know the most famous sermon ever preached. Um, and man, it's it's going to be uh, sad to move out of it, but it, it's kind of exciting as we continue to progress in Matthew. So I would invite you to open up. Your uh, copy of God's Word to uh, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be specifically looking at just just verses 7 through 11 this morning. Follow along as I read God's Word. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, I'm going to start a little bit differently than I usually do if you've heard me give a sermon before. I'm going to uh, share a story, a made-up story. You could call this uh, a parable. And so, listen as I share this story. Imagine a man on a journey through a mountain mountain. Wilderness. His journey should take him about a week. He packs his bag with the right amount of food and water to last the week in the wilderness. He sets out. The first few days go with the plan. He has rationed his food appropriately, he is healthy, and his spirits are up. Indeed, he's actually enjoying the silence and solitude of the wilderness and the beautiful, untainted views. On day four, he is skirting the edge of a mountain with a sharp ledge to his right, It just rained that morning and the rocks are slick. He's being careful, but suddenly his footing slips and he slides down a steep pitch. In the process, he topples end over end, his bag flies open, leaving all of his food scattered among the rocks. His water is gone and he finally gets wedged in some rocks at the bottom of the pitch. He feels unbearable pain and he notices that both of his legs are broken. Now his food is gone his water's gone he's probably most certainly going to die two days go by and he's nearing death by dehydration he's also starving and he's still in unbearable pain and he's drifting in and out of consciousness and right as about he's as, right as about he's <laughs> right as he's about to pass out likely without ever waking up again he sees a man emerge from the trees and then everything goes dark He wakes up, his legs are bound, he's in a cabin, he's warm, and he smells the comforting smell of a wood fire stove. He must have drunk some water because he's not dead, however he can tell that he hasn't eaten anything, he's beyond hungry. His rescuer comes into the room, an old mountain man with a burly beard, and he says, you must be hungry, ask for anything, and I will get it for you, bear, elk, trout from the river, potatoes, fresh bread, wild berries, anything. Just ask. I know you're hungry and you need to eat. The injured man says nothing and instead turns over in his bed and shuts his eyes. He's tired. The mountain man comes back and repeats himself. Truly, ask for anything. I will bring it to you. My food is good. This time the man does ask for something. Could I have another pillow for my head? I'm a bit uncomfortable. Sorry, says the mountain man. There are no extra pillows in the cabin. And then he leaves the room. Finally, the mountain man returns a third time, basically begging the man to ask him for food. But again, the man decides not to answer. But just as the mountain man turns to walk out of the room, the man says, well, I could use a bit of entertainment. Do you have a good book laying around or maybe some playing cards? Now, as the mountain man was just about to open his mouth to say, No, just food. The injured man drifts away and dies of starvation. Now, the story is a bit dramatic, but the point should be clear. And the question that you should be asking is this. Why did the man not ask for food? Many reasons could be given. Only he knows, truly. Now, ask yourself a question. Who are you in this parable? The mountain man or the dying man? The dying man, of course. Now, this parable, obviously, is to get you to think about your prayer life, because that's what our text is about here in Matthew. If someone was to observe your prayer life, your private prayer life, when you're alone, what would they notice? What would they see you asking for? Comfort and entertainment, things that you really don't need, maybe they would find that you don't ask for anything and are just silent. Now, what this parable should make obvious, or what I tried to have it make obvious, is that there really is objectivity to what you should be asking for in prayer. The man should have asked for food. That's obvious. He needed to eat, he was dying. He did not need another pillow. He did not need entertainment. He needed food. Not only that, he was told three times to ask for food. But again, why didn't he? Pride, fear, ignorance, distraction. And so, the question that you should be asking yourself is, why do you not ask for the right things in prayer? Is it because you're afraid? Is it because you're fearful, ignorant, proud, distracted by other things in life? So we are in a section in the sermon now, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is addressing the Christian's relationship with other people. So we obviously in the Beatitudes saw the the Christian identity. Who is the Christian? Then we moved into a section where, okay, now how is the Christian supposed to act as a kingdom citizen? How are they supposed to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And now we're moving into a section, and we have now been in a section where, how is the Christian supposed to relate to other people? And so, Cody preached on the Christian's relationship with his brother. Don't be judgmental. Don't be hypocritical. And then we briefly addressed the Christian's relationship with the dogs and the pigs of the world. And this morning... We're looking at Jesus' teaching on the Christian's relationship with the Father in heaven. So now, the point of our text should be clear. Our relationship with the Father is to be one of constant, expectant, and bold prayer. And as I hope you will see, once we are through this text and through our study, there really is objectivity to what we should be praying for. So here's what we're going to do. This morning we're going to ask three questions about bold, persistent prayer to strengthen your prayer life. Because we all need a stronger prayer life. This is one of the spiritual disciplines that we seem to struggle with a lot. So I hope our prayer life is is encouraged and strengthened after this study in Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through 11. So the first question that we're gonna ask is this. What are we praying for? That is a pretty important question. Because if we look at our text, verse seven, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What are we asking for? What are we seeking? What lies behind the door that we're knocking on? Now, this text, like the one before it, has been taken out of context far too many times. Uh, many Word of Faith, Prosperity Gospel, name and claimant type groups have kind of used this text to teach, well, you know, I can ask for anything, and God is going to give it to me. Is that really what Jesus is saying, though? Ask for anything you want under the sun, and he's going to give it to you. Or maybe consider a text like John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Whatever you wish. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Whatever you want, anything, and he will give it to you. Now, as I draw your attention back to our text Jesus really does tell us what we should be asking for. Look at verse eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, good things to those who ask them. So that's what we should be asking for—good things. But that really doesn't clear it up too much. Now, still kind of clear as mud, I guess. What are good things? You know, a truckload of money kind of sounds like a good thing. A brand new car sounds like a good thing. A nice house, a good job. You know, when I'm guilty of this, every time I'm out bow hunting and I'm sitting up in the deer stand, I think about this text, I really do, and I go, God, you say that you give good things to your children. If they ask, Lord, I ask for a big buck, that would be really, really nice. And most times the prayer goes unanswered. Say a few times in my life he's given me a, a nice buck but most of the time it goes unanswered and I think of this you know it, it seems like hunting is where this happens to me all the time God it would be really nice to get a limit of ducks Lord I ask I knock on the door of a limit of ducks but again these prayers seem to go unanswered so is that what Jesus is saying or think of it this way what if two single God fearing men in your congregation both ask God for the same God-fearing single woman in the congregation. Is God going to answer that prayer? I, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Either he answers it for one or he doesn't, he doesn't answer for either of them. And finally, one more illustration, kind of just to hammer it home. We've probably all thought about this. If you're a football fan, oh God, please let the Vikings win finally. Please. And you think, God, there's probably like 10,000 Christians that are Vikings fans that are praying that the Vikings would win. (laughs) And yet they don't. (laughs) But then the problem is is the other team probably has tens of thousands of Christians praying for their team to win. What will God do? This is a good thing, our football team winning. And so I hope that you start to see that this text really isn't saying Ask for whatever you want, and it will be given to you. It's not all-inclusive. So there's a few ways that we can come to understand what Jesus is saying. First, let's search the text in the context to try to find some clues of what Jesus is really getting at here, and then let's search the Bible for teaching on prayer. Because here's the deal, Biblical Interpretation 101 Uh, is that the Bible does not contradict itself. It's all cohesive and consistent. So if we want to come to an understanding of a theology and doctrine of prayer, we have to take into account all of what Scripture says about prayer, and then we systematize it and come to a conclusion. This is the doctrine of prayer. This is a teaching on prayer. Now, there's probably no one text in Scripture that gives us the whole story of prayer, So we have to use other texts to interpret texts of Scripture. And we call this interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning as well to help us understand this text on prayer. So we're going to look at a a parallel passage in Luke 11. We're going to look at John 15, 7 again. And we're going to look at James 4, 1 through 3 to help make this a little bit clearer. But first, let's look at the text itself in the context to try to find some clues. And here's the first clue. The commands ask, seek, and knock are all present imperatives. Now this is important because it means that we are to keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. We don't stop doing this. We will never stop asking and seeking and knocking. It's persistent. It's ongoing. And now why this could be a problem, though, for uh, things like material things, like a car, is that, hey, God, could you give me a car? And then if he gives it to you, you're no longer asking for a car. It's one and done. That doesn't fit the present imperative here. It's something we keep on doing. And so think for a moment, what, is, what are things that, that I should continually be asking for every single day, always asking for. Well, now let's look at a parallel passage to help make this a little bit clear. Let's look at Luke 11. Um, Specifically, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. Now, this is basically the same teaching that Jesus gives here. He says this, And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight? And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and to the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, now listen closely, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now we're starting to get some clarity here of what the good things are. In this text, it's the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask the question, what are these good things that are related to the Holy Spirit? What are these things? They're most certainly the things of sanctification. Holiness. Righteousness. The strength to kill sin. Purity, boldness in evangelism, love for brother, love for God, love for the word of God. These are the things that are related to the Holy Spirit. These are the good things we are to be asking for. It's the things of the kingdom. And this should make a lot of sense to us because we've been studying the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying How the citizens of the kingdom are to act and behave and who they are. So now how are kingdom citizens to pray? They are to pray for kingdom things. And this kingdom is not of this world. So we should not be praying for the things of this world. We should not be praying for things that do not correspond to the heavenly kingdom, Christ's kingdom. Again, what did Jesus just get done saying in chapter 6, verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Food, clothing, shelter. Seek first his righteousness. Pray for righteousness. In your prayers, they should reflect this. You don't seek or pray for these added things. No, you seek first the kingdom. You pray for the kingdom, and these added things will be, these other things will be added to you. Seek holiness. Pray for holiness. Ask. Ask for these things. Ask God to kill your anxiety. Ask for God to give you a deeper hunger for the word. So let's actually go back to John 15 7. I read that earlier. It says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see the qualification that Jesus gives? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Again, your prayer should be in accordance with God's revealed will in his word. You should be so in love with Christ and therefore so in love with his word... That every prayer that you utter, everything you ask for is in accordance with that word. And therefore then it will most certainly be answered. You can't help but pray God's will. You can't help but pray in accordance with the word. Because you so love Christ who is revealed to you in the word of God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Are your prayers like that? Does everything you ask for accord with Scripture? And I think if you were to really think about your prayer life, probably not. And that is usually the case. It's so hard for us to pray according to God's will revealed in Scripture. Now, if we continue to look at our text in the context, we actually get more clues to this reality. We're just going to keep going. Consider the word we translate as good, agathos in the Greek. And in Matthew, every single time that it's used in the whole gospel of Matthew, it's always in reference reference to moral goodness, except for in our text today where it's in reference to food. But that means that it's just an analogy for moral things. Food is supposed to represent moral things. So, the good are the moral things. Don't ask for pillows. Don't ask for playing cards. Don't ask for a good book. Ask for food spiritual food, righteousness, holiness. Now, likewise, the only other time we find, uh, see the word find in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, as you, you see in our text, verse 7 seek and you will find, it's in verse 14 of chapter 7. And it's in reference to the disciples finding the narrow road of the kingdom, which leads to life. Again, it's all about the kingdom. Our asking, our seeking, our knocking, it's all kingdom-focused. We are not praying for things of this world. John Stott, a famous theologian, he calls these things redemption gifts. Redemption gifts. They are things that the non-believer cannot and does not receive. Now think about that. What are things that the believer or the non-believer receives or can get in this life? They can get material things. They can work really hard and they they can get a new car. They can get a new house. They can get influence in this world and success by the world's standards. They can get power in this world. They can get all these things. But what can't they get? These redemption gifts. The things of Christ's kingdom. Moral goodness, holiness, righteousness, a true love of God, a true love for Scripture. They can't have these things. And these things only come through prayer. Because that's how God has ordained it. Now think about that for a moment. These things only come through prayer. Our faith is an act of faith work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification is active. You're working hard at it and it involves prayer. If you want to be sanctified, you need to pray that you be sanctified. If you want to love for God's word, you need to pray that you love God's word. If you realize that you're not loving your brother as you should, you need to pray that you love your brother as you should. You're praying for the Fruits of the Holy Spirit for love, for joy, for peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things come through prayer and seeking God in prayer. And this makes sense. And that's why in Luke 11, Jesus just says, Will not the God give you the Holy Spirit? Because all these things, all these moral things, all this righteousness comes by way of the Holy Spirit. So again, we're starting to get some clarity now. What should our prayer life look like? Now, I want to say that I really do think that there is such a thing as wasted prayer. You can waste prayer. Think of James 4, 1 through 3. James says this, What? You see, the, these leaders in, in this church that James is writing to, they wanted influence, they wanted power, they wanted leadership, but they, they wanted it by means of the flesh, by means of the world. They wanted it according to worldly wisdom. But what does James, says, what does James say in, in chapter 1, verse 5? Ask God for wisdom and he will give it to you. Godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, but they were seeking influence by means of worldly wisdom. And so they ask God for these things that correspond to worldly wisdom, that correspond to the world. And he says, you ask and you don't, do not receive because you ask wrongly. You waste your prayer. Think about that in your own life. Just really think about your prayer life. And here's, here's a good way to figure out if your prayers are Kingdom focused prayers. Think about the life of Jesus. Sanctification is about being conformed to the image of Christ, being made like Christ. And if we think about his life as it's presented to us in the Gospels, what marks his life? Is it all this stuff? Is it cars? Is it houses? He says, birds have dens, or foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't even have a house. What marked his life? Righteousness. Holiness. What marked his life? A love for the Father. He did the will of the Father. That is what marked his life. And even consider his prayers. Consider his prayer in John 17, his high priestly prayer. As homework, just go read that after church and think about, is this Prayer that he's praying for this world or for the kingdom, his kingdom. So if your prayer life is consumed with the here and now, that's just wasted prayer. And I think that COVID has probably exposed that in a lot of people. They're worried about their physical life. They're worried about this life. They're worried about their job, security in this life. And so their prayers reflect that. but they're citizens of a different kingdom. And their prayers and your prayers should reflect that. And so that brings us to our second question that we're going to ask. You should go a little bit quicker now. How can we be confident that we will get what we ask for? How can we be confident that we will get what we ask for? Well, let's look at our text again. And I'm going to read it slowly. And I want you to pay attention to how many times Jesus promises answer to prayer. Starting in verse 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, everyone who asks receives, and to the one who finds, uh, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So I counted seven promises to answer your prayer. Seven in this short passage. Seven assurances that your prayer most certainly will be answered. And really, what what does this mean for us? How should we think about that? Well, it's like Jesus is yelling at you, if you ask for kingdom things, God will most certainly answer these prayers. Ask, and you will be given these things. He wants to. He, he, He craves to lavish you with righteousness and holiness and love for him. Ask for these things. Repetition is really always to drive home a point. And we have lots of repetition in this chunk of scripture. But then he he fleshes this out a little bit more with uh, an argument. And we should be familiar with this argument because he just used it in chapter 6. It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If you remember the sermon on don't be anxious, Christ's Christ asks his disciples to consider, you know, consider the birds, consider the lilies, consider the grass, these things, how God takes care of these things. How much more valuable are you, his child? And so again, we have this same type of argument. And so starting in verse 9, he says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The argument is very, very simple. Consider your earthly fathers. Consider how zealous they are to take care of their children. And this is usually the case. In most cases, certainly there are exceptions in this world because we're sinful, but in most cases you'll see an earthly father who actually does want to take care of their children. They want to feed them and nourish them and protect them. They want to give them things. This is our normal experience. And so think about the picture that Jesus is painting here. It might seem a little odd to us that you know, you would, somehow a kid would be tricked into eating a rock. Uh, but in Israel, there were all these rocks that actually looked like loaves of bread. They resemble them. They're kind of oval-shaped. They look like a loaf of bread. Now, obviously, if a child grabbed this, he'd be like, okay, this is a pretty heavy loaf of bread. Maybe it's not bread. It's a rock. But nonetheless, by sight alone, you could see how a child could be deceived into thinking that that rock is bread. Or think about the snake and the fish. This is the idea of a father bringing a child cooked food. Cooked snake or cooked fish. And snake... Snakes and fish kind of resemble each other. They both have scales. They both lack legs. And so in Israel, uh, well, in the Old Testament law, God prohibited the Jews from eating anything that crawled on its belly, which would be a snake. It would defile a person. So this is, Jesus is fleshing out this reality of, which one of you Jewish fathers would have tricked your child like this? Instead of giving him a fish that was good to eat and would have nourished his body you give him a snake, thus defiling him. God prohibited that people eat snakes. It's just, you would never do that. That's just bad. The natural father would never do that to his son. So Jesus is getting his audience to consider this. You fathers, you don't don't do this. But then he goes even further. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Evil. All earthly fathers are evil. All people on earth are evil. I'm evil. You're evil. Does that offend you? You know, it's very interesting. Jesus just flat out says it. it. All human beings are fallen and depraved. They're all evil. And he says, you're evil. He doesn't include him in that. He knows he's morally perfect and righteous. Now, today that statement that humanity is evil is is it's hard for people to swallow today. And if you do any evangelism, especially on a college campus, and you start to talk to college students, and you ask them, Do you think you're a good person? Almost all of them say, Well, yeah, I'm a good person. And you might ask, well, human nature, are people born good or bad? Oh, I think people are born good and culture and society might corrupt them, but in the most case, people are pretty good and they're born good. And that's just the assumption. That's what most people assume. They just assume that they're good. And then you might hear them ask a question like this because they think they're good, so they'll ask, why does bad things happen to good people? Maybe you've asked that question. You hear that question a lot, and that's the wrong question. Why do bad things happen to evil people? That's the right question. And then an even better question is, why does anything good ever happen to evil people? That's the question. That's the correct question. And the answer is grace. But again, all this to say, Jesus is just saying, hey, humanity, the world, Every person in it except me, you're all evil. You're all evil. And you being evil, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. And then we get to the reality, how much more, how much more will your Father in Heaven give you good gifts if you ask Him? If evil fathers know how to give good gifts Albeit they're natural gifts, so they are things like food and shelter and clothing, but how much more will your Father in heaven give you truly good things, spiritual good things, righteousness and holiness and love for Him? How much more? And that brings us to our third and final question that we're going to ask. Who are we praying to? And this should be abundantly clear. This isn't really even a good question, question to ask, but who are we praying to? Our Father in heaven, of course. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So here we clearly see that Jesus is still speaking towards his disciples. Some have said that at this point in the sermon, he's kind of shifting towards uh, the the Pharisees and the Jews that are scattered around the disciples because he calls them evil. But I I don't think that is how you should interpret this because he clearly, Jesus is clearly saying that the people who ask, seek, and knock are children of their Heavenly Father. These, Jesus is still speaking towards the disciples. So, this might not seem so radical to you that you're praying towards your Father in Heaven. This is Christianity 101. If you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been in, a church, in the church for a while, you, this is just common language that we pray to our Father in Heaven that God is our Father. This is just really familiar to us. But this is not, this is, this is radical to, to the Jews. And maybe if you remember from Cody's sermon a while ago when he preached on uh, the Lord's Prayer back at the beginning of chapter 6, you know, it starts out, Our Father in Heaven, and Cody touched on this a little bit, but just as way, a way of reminder, this is radical, that we would call God our Father and address Him as Father in prayer. Now to illustrate this, a professor named Jeremiah, uh, he carefully examined the prayer literature of ancient Judah, which is a pretty large body of literature. It's very extensive. And he, he combed through it and he searched it and he never once found a single reference to God as Abba, which we translate as Father. Not once did he find that a Jew would address God as Father in prayer. Not once. It was, Abba was a, a, a homely word, a common word that you would use to address your actual physical, natural dad. And a Jew would never consider calling the sovereign Lord of the universe, Yahweh, Abba. They never would have done that, and they didn't. So the fact that Jesus, when he's addressing his disciples, is saying, you should address him as Abba, as Father, is radical. It's crazy. We're not praying to some distant God who we dare not approach. So we should not feel like we uh, can't approach him and we have this fear and just like, ah, I don't think I can go to him. He's, he's too separate from me. And certainly he is holy and perfect and righteous and totally other than you. But that's the amazing thing. You can approach him. You can approach a God like that, the God who is holy, other You can approach him as father. That is incredible. And he's not evil like your earthly fathers. He's perfectly good and righteous. And he loves his children more than any father on earth could love theirs. And he desires to lavish you with good things, the things of the kingdom. And so let's consider just a couple texts here. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or consider what John says in his gospel, John 1, 9-13. The true light which gives light to everyone uh, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, or nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what accounts for this radical shift in how we address God in prayer from the Jews to now the Christians? What accounts for this radical shift? Well, it's the gospel. It's the work of Christ. It's that Christ, God, himself came down in the form of a man and took on human flesh and lived a perfect life and obeyed the law perfectly and obeyed the will of the Father perfectly and went to the cross and took our sins on himself. He became sin who knew no sin and he faced the wrath of the Father on our behalf in our place so that we could have peace with God, so that we would not have to be under his wrath and condemnation. And then when we repent of our sin and believe in him for salvation, we are given righteousness and we are given the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That is what accounts for this, that we can now approach God asking him for good things. It's the gospel. That's the only reason. You can pray radically like this. You can pray expectantly like this and boldly like this. It's Christ crucified. That is it. It's incredible. And so now that you who have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and been given the spirit of adoption, you should pursue the Father in heaven expectantly and boldly and persistently. Ask him for good things. He will most certainly answer you Consider the very end of of, uh, our, our verse in Romans 8. What does it say? Oh, I have to find my spot here. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's why we are to continue to ask and seek and knock, and we never end, because the end is glorification. The end is glorification. And so until you're glorified, you need to continue to press in to ask for the things of sanctification. To ask for holiness and righteousness that God would give you a hatred towards your sin and a love towards his word. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, pray for righteousness, pray for stronger faith, pray for the things of the kingdom, and God will most certainly answer your prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are beyond thankful for the work of Christ on the cross that we now, Lord, have been adopted into the family, that we have entered the kingdom and we are now kingdom citizens, Lord, and we can approach you in prayer boldly, Lord, expecting answers. But Lord, I pray and I ask, Lord, I ask that you would give us A spirit of prayer, Lord, that desires and craves the things of the kingdom and not the things of this world. That as we go into our day, the rest of the day and into this week, Lord, that our prayers would be marked by moral goodness. A desire for moral goodness, Lord, and not for desire of the things of this world, Lord. Lord, we need help in our prayer. We need help. In our seeking of you, Lord. So give us that help that we need. Stir up in us, Lord, a spirit of prayer. Lord, and a spirit of expectation that these prayers will be answered. In your name, amen.